0: And we are back <laughs> We're back Welcome to another episode of Rainbows and Bullshit With your glamorous host, Woosh Right. I've used my full name, actually I've heard that in a voice note today You were like, Woosh Dan <laughs> like... I'm
1: using it a lot, lately. <laughs> I love that
0: <laughs> Love that for you um, So I'm with the amazing Emma Palmer I feel like, Emma, do you want to do an intro? Because people probably know like you <laughs> <Yeah>. by now <laughs>
1: Don't need know about yeah. me, um, it, but it might be helpful for those that don't know. Oh,
0: absolutely! absolutely. So please introduce yourself. No,
1: you introduce. No, okay, great. Please.
0: Emma Palmer it's is a good. close friend. She is also the um, director of um, uh, for a company called Unleashed, um, and they exist really to support organisations in supercharging their diversity and inclusion efforts. Yes. I basically just gave you a line from my own consult because I use the word supercharge A lot of people do inclusion. supercharge You know, it's, yeah, no. uh, it's uh, but popular. whoosh, right?
1: Whoosh,
0: whoosh, you know, yeah, whoosh, yeah. So, uh, but but she's director of unleashed. Um, director at one of the directors. Unleashed,
1: one of the directors, yeah, sorry, director at unleashed
0: of community. community, which is amazing, and has and also supports um, consultancy work in terms of DNI. Yeah. So we were going to talk this session. So class is in session. <laughs> so we want to talk in this session about, and we were like, yes, we we were here for it. We got all the feels when we said humanising. HR. Yeah. Right?
1: Yeah.
0: And I'm really excited for this because I work in HR. <laughs> and I guess I've been on this bandwagon for for a few years now actually about mm.
1: um, How long have you been in HR?
0: So I started in HR I god like over uh, I was like 17 18.
1: Oh wow. So yeah, 20 years then. That's oh. a long time. <laughs>
0: Well, I don't know why I responded like nah, that's, no, I'm I'm younger than that.
1: Like,
0: my age, <laughs> nine, so, yeah. Um, I so just over so it's been about fifteen years.
1: Okay. Mm. Yeah, I was just gonna ask you like, how do you?
0: Oh like, no! <laughs>
1: <laughs> how have you seen HR change
0: evolve? Yeah. Um, well, that's a really interesting point. I don't think it's fast enough. So. You know, since I took took on the role of, you know, so 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 I worked in HR, so I started my HR career, I guess, in banking, right? Very big corporate conglomerates uh, Barclays, Lloyds, and Santander. Then I moved into healthcare. And now I'm in the not-for-profit space. Mm. So I think across the three different sectors and disciplines, um, they're very different. But HR traditionally has pretty much been the same in the sense of you know what their outputs have, have been. So very transactional paperwork, administration, which I, you're never so going to escape. Escape that in HR, right? That's yeah. kind of why we you know we do, that's a, a function of our role. Um, how I've seen it evolve. Certainly, probably more so in the last few years, um, has really been around the role HR is playing at a strategic level. So, uh, we have a voice. You know, we're certainly gonna, you know starting to use that voice to to enable change. But I I still don't think we we're, we're championing change. And advocating for issues mm-hmm. as 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 strongly as I think we should, mm-hmm. um, in, in HR, you know. And so, I guess I've seen a journey where technology shifted a lot of the transformational stuff. So technology changed HR in terms; of it's much easier to get contracts printed now. It's much easier to, um, you know, get recruitment systems, HR systems in place. You can get access to data more readily. We're definitely more evidence based than I think when I joined the profession. So we're definitely talking about things in a way that's like. You know, with numbers and data and statistics, which is, you know, good and good, um. But I still think we have a long way to go on the D&I front, mm-hmm. um, because seventy percent of HR professionals are, are are you know white women. Wow. So coming into that profession as a as a gay brown man, um, mm-hmm. has been um challenging to advance some of the conversations that you know you know i've I've, I've wanted to, to advance especially around race i think we still have a big a massive kind of space to to do the race you know do some really important work around race yeah um lgbt i think as well is, is not as much as you know i think you know um I think, we, we, I think we, we, have, we have a much bigger role to play in that. So that's mm. kind of how I've seen it change. But you, so you've worked in a variety of different settings, but you've come at it from more of an Indian island, haven't you? So mm-hmm. how, what's your experience of HR as an outsider? I don't want to call you an outsider, but like as no, someone, know, you know. I, who, yeah,
1: he, I, I know what you mean. So HR has never been a, a function or a role that I've had um, in, in any of the, the places I've worked. It's always been, more so in the last seven or so years since I've been in the EDI space, it's always been um, through training or workshops or conversations that I've had with HR professionals who are really struggling to um, not understand EDI but understand how they can play a role in it and use, use their own roles and platforms to push the work forward yeah. um, and I'm also finding that people that are in HR roles um, have EDI as a an arm of mm. what they do mm. and it's almost like well you're HR so you can do the EDI stuff yeah. and they're just given it yeah. and they're not really told yeah how to do stuff yeah. or shown how to do stuff yeah and so and an EDI is you know a really unique one because a lot of it is concept-based But it's also lived experience. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: And we can talk about concepts forever. We can talk about the academic side of this till we're blue in the face. Mm. But what we're really talking about is people. Yeah, absolutely. And our everyday. When we're talking about racism, when we're talking about homophobia, biphobia, transphobia, when we're talking about, um, you know... um, uh, any kind of phobia really or any form of discrimination. We're talking about people and those real experiences that they have. If you bring that into the workplace and you you highlight it or you speak to somebody because you know they have the power to change things yeah. and that person doesn't really get it yeah. or understand or tries to brush it under the carpet or doesn't really know what the process is around it, it can be quite difficult then yeah, to yeah. to yeah. move move forward yeah. or to affect any sort of change um, at a sort of systemic level. Yeah, and I think I've found that HR folk really, really, really struggle with EDI, mm. either because it's just not been on their radar, or because there's so much with yeah. EDI. Where where to start. To, like, yeah. Where like where to start? Yeah. Um, and I've spoken to a lot of HR, mostly women, who have said that they've been in HR for twenty plus years. Yeah. So it's you know it's this is this is a brand new world for them. Yeah. And they've done stuff a certain way for such a long time. It's been habitual in a lot of cases, absolutely. processes, systems, and now. Everything's changing, the conversation's changing, and because of their role as HR professionals, they will be brought into conversations around discipline um, or anything to do with bullying and harassment. They will, just by the nature of their role. But can they really get involved in the conversation at Mm. a human level Mm. Mm. um, if they don't really understand the the humans behind some of these experiences? And so, you know, when I've run training or workshops, these are often the, the conversations that we're having with, with yeah.
0: HR folks. That's great to hear that. And it resonates my with my with my experience of HR and and with my beliefs around and principles of, of HR because one word that I particularly encourage HR professionals to reflect on is vulnerability. So the backbone of many organizations now is you know hr is a, is a key enabler of 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 organizations um and and there is a you know so very you know there is i i have seen experienced um environments where people will go to hr to um to get the answers mm-hmm. right because hr is the the, you know they they know they know everything. It's it's this omnipotent presence that you know you go to and and actually in the world of diversity and include you know the the, the 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 things that we're see- seeing now in terms of the the, the conversations and mm. and uh, understanding lived experience. Um, that is not a world that HR you know know all about. Mm. It, you know it's it's just it's just it's not. Mm. And so to. Enable us as a profession because I I am an HR professional. So to enable us as a profession to really help our organisations, which is what we're there to do, really, are you know our people, we have to be vulnerable, and we have to say, I don't know enough about this. So please educate me around this particular piece, you know. And I think that's a, a way of engaging with people that is very alien to many people in HR who are who have been relied upon for so many years to solve a problem, right? Mm. And so that's really kind of where I'm at with, with with the profession is that we have to be vulnerable and we have to um, be curious, mm. you know, to be able to understand, um, and we have to go at it with a positive intent to really understand, you know, the issues. So that's kind of where I'm at with it and, and, and that's where it is.
1: And, that, and that's, you know, these are some, this is tough to do, this isn't easy work. And I think there's been a, a perception of HR that it's always just been in the interest of the business, not the, in the interest the of employee. their people. Yeah. Um, and so it, that in of itself is a culture shift that needs to happen. Just the mindset of HR, it needs to change, if HR is to change. Um, and I've, um, I've seen lots of DNI roles over the years where the function of an EDI role is in HR yeah. it sits in HR and that just doesn't work
0: mm, absolutely not it should
1: sit across HR yeah for sure uh, because the two do dovetail but having an EDI person or an EDI team that is that historically has been HR is going to be very difficult if those people don't even understand yeah. the, the basics around d mm. and when we really drill down into this, we're talking about, you know, when we're talking about racism or anti-racism in organisations, if we look at the last two years after George Floyd, um, many organisations have come out and said that they want to be anti-racist, or organisations have said, these people need to be anti-racist. Um, we're not talking about diversity and inclusion here. Mm. When we talk about racism, we're talking we're talk about, about racism. racism. Absolutely. It's not... 100%. You know, uh, a CEO of a company shouldn't sit there and think, well, you know, if we've got a diversity and inclusion team, that means we're not we've racist. It, problem. Or that yeah. means that we don't... Um, uh, we're not complicit in systemic and structural racism because it affects policy, it affects access to things, it affects everything. So... If a uh, if an organisation uh, reliant on their DNI teams to um, to 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 kind of raise awareness of issues and that makes them exempt from any of the issues, they're wrong. Yeah, absolutely, one hundred percent. It's a fundamental uh, problem if that's the the mindset. One
0: hundred percent. I was um, I um, so in the pre in another episode, um, I sat down with Garin, who is someone that. Um, is an expert in organizational development and so check out that episode because that really kind of gives it's HR it's OD for HR professionals and it's we talked about some of the similarities and also some of the skills in OD that will enable HR practitioners and one of them was around slowing things down and really thinking about the issues and being curious we talked about curiosity Mm. and I cannot say and stress that is enough in terms of how important that skill is because we're seeing a time of great socio social change. We're seeing a time of great justice um, where people are are demanding that their rights. You know that they have. They have. You know. Um, we're seeing a, cha- a period of a social justice. I think unlike anything yeah, we've seen no, in our I lifetimes. As well. And organizations are then just running into like the first thing they're going okay we'll hire a chief diversity officer or we've got an ed and i team and wait we have tick solve, on yeah. to the next problem and it's this fast world paced world that is actually the problem mm. so running into like organizations if you look at organizations right we're quick we're agile we have mm. to be right now anyway otherwise we don't exist because of all the, all the crazy changes happening pandemic technology this that and the other but if wars, war, wars absolutely but if we cannot slow down and look at the our problems and take the time and we think that it's ticked because we've got an ED&I role or a Chief Diversity Officer role, then we have to ask ourselves, no, we just have to not, we just we just have to be cl- honest and go, right, this, you know, there's some issues in our organisation that we need to address. It's not going to be solved by having a, someone in the team who's responsible mm. for that. It needs to happen. I was at a conference um, this week, a seminar, by... Um, with ED and I professionals, um, and I was invited by the, the amazing Aisha. Um, Aisha's on another one of my episodes, so check out that one. Um, it's the Ramadan episode. I, I sit down with Aisha. She invited me to the ED and I professionals um, seminar, and it was refreshing to hear the challenges with all of us in the ED and I space. They're very similar. They are
1: very similar. You
0: know, and one of the things that people were saying is, it does is it helpful or harmful to have ED and I roles within organisation. As opposed to, say, because I know you work for a consultancy and actually getting a consultancy to come in because some of the conversations that you're going to then have to have.
1: Well, I think it's twofold. I think so having been in-house as a D&I manager, um, I was the only person in that role. I had the support of my director and I had the support of the CEO. um, But effectively, I was writing the strategy from scratch. um, And yeah it was it, it was taking its toll because it was just me on my own um and then I came out of that and now I work for consultancy and it's a completely different way of working and I you know when I was bringing in when I was bringing in people to work with me when I was in-house it felt felt seamless Mm. it it kind of just worked because that consultant was able to come in um they had no um preconceived ideas um they weren't part of the organization they weren't part of any of the politics they were able to come in and work with me and work with other members of the team on x for example and i did feel like there was there's more of a a will to listen to consultants. Then there are people that are in house. Yeah, absolutely. Because you know
0: you're paying the it's psychological right. You're paying the money to come in and tell you something.
1: They're seen as experts, right? And yet, people that are in house don't have that same. And, and um, there's power
0: influences when it's in house. You know, there's power
1: influences. I.
0: Uh, um,
1: and so what I what I what I think is that that there is room for both. Yeah. I think you if you're going to hire an EDI manager or a uh, chief diversity officer or you're going to build a function within an organisation that's EDI there needs to be capacity they, they need resources they need support they need money Yeah. and then they need outside counsel yeah. to come in and support them yeah. in, in making a change. Of,
0: absolutely, 100%. If
1: you're relying on one person or you're actually just relying solely, because we know this happens as well, if you're relying on your network group mm. or your ERG oh. to drive the yeah. the DNI piece or work or agenda or whatever you want to call it, you are, you are failing. Yeah,
0: you're like blind.
1: You're blind and in a year's time or five years time when other organisations in your sector have progressed and you haven't, you know, you'd, you'd need to probably look back and, and see what you've yeah, invested absolutely. in and what you haven't invested in. It's a really
0: good point. ERGs is a really good point because we were talking about with, without a sponsorship, what's the point of those back, groups? You know
1: what, back in the late 80s, early 90s, network groups were set up for people to come together have a few drinks um and and bitch and moan about yeah and just have a moan or have a have a laugh um they were places where people could just meet and just connect in in a kind of informal way but it was always um shrouded in like pubs and bars and alcohol was always involved let's meet every three months Mm. let's just go to the pub and have a couple of hours that that's how network groups sort of started if in in a way in organizations and and that's not to say that they never did anything or that they weren't relevant but when we're talking about the social aspect of a network group that's very exclusive because not everyone can go to the pub or wants to go to the pub or even wants to drink yeah so you've just excluded a, a massive chunk of your organization just because of your location yeah. and there's no real agenda there's no real it's just like, a bit of a, it's yeah. just a it's just yeah. a meetup. over the years in the last sort of 20 30 years we've seen a real shift so network groups aren't just there to put up put, put on events they're not just there for a couple of times throughout the year to celebrate lgbt history yeah. month or, yeah, or black history, black history month, month. Yeah. Which they were used as, you know, many years ago, and they still are, but I think network groups have really come into their own now. We're thinking much more intersectionally, connecting connecting with all the other different groups. Um, I've spoken to lots of network chairs who are really strategic in their thinking. Um, There's terms of reference, there's objectives. They're really clear about what they are and Mm. why they're being used. Mm. And the organisation are then using them in a much more strategic way as well to help them deliver on their organisational objectives. Networks are being used to influence policy changes. They're being used to recruit others into the organisation. So they're really powerful if they're used well. And I think HR need... I think HR professionals need... The same level
0: of um, connection and networking.
1: connection yeah. and
0: support
1: because yeah, absolutely there yeah. just
0: isn't that really. If and I, I am you know that's one of the things I'm just got dialogue with what well, with our membership body, um, with then forced the OPD to think about how we can cultivate those kind of environments for people to to be able to explore things safely in a way. Sorry, just going back ERGs. I know we went into a conversation ERGs just just to. Um, kind of um acronym bust employee resource groups and they're typically like your lgbt plus networks for example if yeah. you have them or your um, bame networks if you've got those kind of networks so there's those kind of resource groups within the organizations that emma was talking about and, and i was talking about just then i i still don't know how i feel about those groups if i'm being completely honest and the reason is i agree i think we have seen a shift i think we are um i think we are using them as you as you say you know in, in a different way not everyone <laughs> no
1: not not all um, network groups are used in that way no. not every network group has money or sponsors I think
0: what we do in that space one of the questions that we were having in the, conference, the seminar I went to this week was around how we engage white men in the conversation and when we create these groups um you know which you know I, I fully I fully subscribe into this, the reason that these spaces need to, to, to exist in, in work especially in work um I've seen that there's a that there, there becomes a level of detachment with white men in particular who don't feel that they either are what can be part of these groups or if they are part of these or or they would then you know so either they they, they would feel uncomfortable not to be part of it or, or even worse wouldn't then engage in any conversation and then would keep so I I think there's a I think one of the things I would say around these groups is how can these The lived experience of these you know people in these groups reach the ears of those amongst us who have the most power and influence in our organizations and it's not like a you know one of the things that um, people do is that they go into these groups and they're like oh well if the chief exec heard this she'd be she or he would be mortified they would be mortified by what they're hearing and you know they would take action well it's not it's not just that, though. It's an education piece because having... E- e- so it's engaging your sponsors into these groups in a way that they can actually do something meaningful with that, with, with, the, with what they're hearing and seeing. Otherwise, it's, I think, it's pointless. I
1: think the onus is on the leaders, sponsors, to reach those groups.
0: Yeah, not the other way around. Not the other way yes. around.
1: I think there's a difference between segregationist groups and subversive groups. And if you've got a group of people that share, like, uh, lived experiences and challenges and and similarities and all of that and differences as well. that's a safe haven for a lot of people, especially in a workplace where I still think there's a culture of you shouldn't bring certain things into, into work. the workplace yeah. because it's not a work yeah, issue, yeah, yeah. when actually the workplace is a microcosm of society. Absolutely. You know, people... We, we talked about this earlier. We don't leave parts of ourselves at the door. No,
0: absolutely. And
1: if we do, that should be by choice, and we should have agency to do that. I don't think anybody should be forced into being their whole selves if they don't want to be, yeah, it's about agency rather than um, editing who you are for fear of discrimination or being denied an opportunity because of your protected characteristic, for example. Yeah. And so I think network groups are really um, safe for people to to, to go to and, to and to know that they're there. I think those that want to understand the issues, um, well, no, not want to understand, I think people in power should first acknowledge that these issues exist. That's the first step to change. Acknowledge it, then work to understand it. And so sponsors, CEOs, they should actively be going to meetings. I know that we've all got a million and one things to do, but I've seen some really great examples of where sponsors have dropped in on one of the meetings that year with the network group it might not be all of them but it's one of them or two of them and they spend time with the group they understand what the issues are and they give them free reign to do what they want to do yeah. um, obviously within reason um, but that's the whole point of a sponsor right is to yeah. sign things off yeah. budget Resources basically money, um, and and then to push those push those conversations that they're hearing at that level into their, their level. Levels. Yes.
0: That's the connection. That's, that's the
1: connection. Yeah. And so for me, it's not really about reaching the ears of those people. It's about those people's ears reaching the the rooms of where those people are in. Yeah.
0: Um.
1: And that's that's what we call doing the work.
0: Absolutely, I think. Um, Final thoughts, I guess, as we kind of wrap this up, because it's about you. We started this around humanising HR, and I think this is all part, really. Part it really of the, does connect. hundred percent, and I think one of the things I've been, I've been mulling this over, and I've been like, okay, you know, there's an activist element in some of the work we do there like, is. in ED&I, Yeah. Right. So there's a there's there's a there's a championing and an advocating of, of groups. Um, and I know not not from an HR perspective that you know many people find that you know I'm uncomfortable mm-hmm. with that but I think I draw back to some principles around curiosity educating listening listening 100% and that's new it's different you know to many people in HR but it's it's important um, and I also think that you know we say racism versus anti-racism as an example right calling something out and and, and, and standing HR have to lead that if we want our organisations to be anti-racist, HR role model. What we want our organisation to be that the, the va- HR's role is 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 providing a, a, f- a frame of reference for mm-hmm. how you know your culture. You know how you you expect to be to operate in that yeah. culture. So you you have to you have to t- you have to be brave in HR and take that that kind of step. Um, that's kind of where I would say you know we need to start to pay attention to. But listen, this podcast is one example, right? So I'm shameless self promotion.
1: Exactly, <laughs> and you know you mentioned earlier about HR not having that space or those connections. Um, what I do in in my day job is um, not that I have a night job. Is it? <laughs> night job. No, um, I mean if I do, it's it's basically watching TV and <laughs> um, you know getting uh, obsessed with Married at First Sight.
0: Or or, or um four in a bed oh four four.
1: in a bed yeah (laughs) um but i i i lead on a network called the arena and it's a global network of hr and edi professionals to come together connect network but also tackle their own inclusion challenges together um and it's it's a one-stop shop of content toolkits Uh, guides conversation learning in a live and constructive way through um our own social media platform called the arena and so if there is anybody out there that that wants that place um or or to kind of build their network and build their connections come to the arena
0: absolutely um, details of the arena will be made available in the bio for the link um as as well as emma's details and handle and stuff so please do um reach out if that's something that's interesting. And we
1: have, we've got a bunch of HR folk in there who I'm having conversations with daily that are coming along along to our masterclasses and workshops and they're, they're, they are curious um, and they are learning and they are sharing their challenges yeah. and we're able to navigate them together and for the EDI folk in the room, they're able to, I guess, almost educate the HR folk about some of the issues. Yeah, in a safe space, um,
0: which is, yeah. Absolutely.
1: And collaborate, so... Yeah yeah it's um i think we'll get there
0: absolutely and that wraps up another episode of rainbows and bullshit i am i've been worse i've been worse i say this all the
1: time emma i've been emma <laughs>
0: <laughs> and we will catch up with you very soon take care have a great take
1: day. take care have a great day
0: Bye.